All right, let's continue with our discussion of Mrs. Dalloway. On page 2171, uh, Clarissa Dalloway returns home. Uh, What are they looking at, said Clarissa Dalloway to the maid who opened the door. The hall of the house was cool as a vault. Mrs. Dalloway raised her hand to her eyes, and as the maid shut the door to and she heard the swish of Lucy's skirt, she felt like a nun who had left the world and feels fold round her the familiar veils and the response to old devotions. So, now, this is an interesting metaphor. Uh, Mrs. Dalloway returning home, she feels like a nun returning to her cloister, uh, the, the old devotions. Now, that could be both a, a positive thing, you know, she, she's right where she belongs, this is the center of her worship, uh, but also it might suggest that, uh, you know, she's an older woman, she is no longer uh, going to be a mother, she is kind of, uh, there are negative possible connotations to this being a nun as well. The cook whistled in the kitchen. She heard the click of the typewriter. It was her life, and bending her head over the hall table, she bowed beneath the influence, felt blessed and purified, saying to herself as she took the pad with the telephone message on it how moments like this are buds on the tree of life. Flowers of darkness they are, she thought, as if some lovely rose had blossomed for her eye only. Not for a moment did she believe in God, but all the more, she thought, taking up the pad, one must repay in daily life to servants, yes, to dogs and and canaries, above all to Richard, her husband, who was the foundation of it, of the gay sounds and the green lights, of the cook even whistling, for Mrs. Walker was Irish and whistled all day long. One must pay back for this secret deposit of exquisite moments, she thought, lifting the pad while Lucy stood by her, trying to explain how. So notice that, again, in this in this uh, interior life of the characters that uh, Wolf is presenting us with, this is a, a an almost holy moment. And she says very explicitly, it's not a religious moment, even though she's mentioned be, feeling like a nun, uh, it, it's a kind of, but it is a kind of a, a worship and gratitude that you usually uh, associate with religious ecstasy. Uh, that's when she feels grateful. It's a gratitude for her life and all of even the minor things in it. And then uh, uh, Lucy says, "Mrs. Dalloway, ma'am." Uh, Clarissa read the telephone pad. Lady Bruton wishes to know if Mr. Dalloway will lunch with her today. Mr. Dalloway, ma'am, told me to tell you he would be lunching out. Dear, said Clarissa, and Lucy shared, as she meant her to, her disappointment, but not the pang, felt the concord between them, took the hint, thought how the gentry uh, the gentry love gilded her own furniture with future with calm, and taking Mrs. Dalloway's parasol, handed it like a sacred weapon, which which a goddess, having acquired, acquitted herself honorably in the field of battle, sheds and placed in the umbrella stand. Uh, so, and again, look how this is magnifying the moments of everyday life. Uh, her, her umbrella is like the weapon that a goddess would have. Fear no more, said Clarissa. Fear no more the heat of the sun. For the shock of Lady uh, Bruton 
asking Richard to lunch without her made the moment in which she had stood shiver as a plant on the riverbed feels the shock of a passing oar and shivers. So she rocked. So she shivered. So again, we're following the the, the minute fluctuations of her consciousness here. And this news about uh, her husband is going to lunch out with Lady Bruton without her, um, this gives her a shock. This is not, you know, she's had this moment of great happiness, and now she's kind of unsettled. She has to, this, this mantra of fear no more, the heat of the sun has to come back in. Um, Millicent Bruton, whose lunch parties were said to be extraordinarily amusing, had not asked her. No vulgar jealousy could separate her from Richard, but she feared time itself, and read on Lady Bruton's face as if it had been a a dial cut in impassive stone the dwindling of life, how year by year her share was sliced, how little the margin that remained was capable any longer of stretching, of absorbing, as in the youthful years, the colors, salts, tones of existence, so that she filled the room she entered, and felt often as she stood hesitating one moment on the threshold of her drawing-room an exquisite suspense, such as might stay a diver before plunging while the sea darkens and brightens beneath him, and the waves, which threaten to break, but only gently split their surface, roll and conceal and encrust as they just turn over the the weeds with pearl. Uh, Now again, this disappointment, uh, she says, it's not just jealousy, it's uh, though clearly that's something a disappointment. As she said, she wanted even her maid to feel the disappointment, but not the pang that it gives her. And it's related to her own mortality. And she begins to think about that a little bit further on. It says she's feeling herself suddenly shriveled, aged, breastless, the grinding, blowing, flowering of the day out of doors, out of the window, out of her body and brain, which now failed since Lady Bruton whose lunch parties were said to be extraordinarily amusing, had not asked her. Now, you know, whether you whether you like uh, Mrs. Dalloway or not depends a whole lot on how much you get into these kinds of moments, because these are the real moments of the plot. Uh, this is of the story. It's really not much of a plot. There's not a lot that happens externally. I mean, the only thing that externally has happened here is that she's gotten a letter saying her husband is having lunch with uh, lunch out today. But inside, that triggers a whole cascade of emotions and feelings and baggage, and that's what the, mainly the book is about. Um, it, it's about tracing those uh, very fine details of our responses to the events of everyday life. And we follow different characters and see how, how different minds respond to those kinds of things. And this this moment, she goes and she looks at the... She's been sleeping in an attic bedroom by herself because she's been ill. She's just over this her illness. And uh, she begins thinking about uh, her past, about, uh, about who she is. Look at around the top of 2173. Uh, for that, she could dimly perceive. She resented it, had a scruple, picked up uh, heaven knows where or or she felt sent by nature, who is invariably wise, yet she could not resist sometimes yielding to the charm of a woman, not a girl, of a woman, 
confessing, as to her they often did, some scrape, some folly. And whether it was pity or their beauty or that she was older or some accident like a faint scent or a violin next door, so strange is the power of sounds at certain moments, she did undoubtedly then feel what men felt. Now this is one of the things that I think is very interesting about Clarissa Dalloway in contrast to many of the other characters whose minds we we uh, dip into is the level of her self-awareness. Um, she seems very much in touch with herself in a way, as we'll see, Peter is very much not. He is it seems not to be fully in touch with his own thoughts and feelings, but uh, Clarissa Dalloway is. And here she's thinking about she has these almost romantic feelings for women. Um, she said, but this question of love, she thought, putting her coat away, this falling in love with women. Take Sally Seton, her relation in the old days with uh, Sally Seton. Had not that, after all, been love? And so now she goes, it's kind of a flashback. She's thinking about the time in, in her uh, childhood home of Bruton, and Sally was a guest there. She was uh, kind of a, a, a poor relation. Um, and it says, you know, all that evening she could not take her eyes off Sally. Um, and there was this obvious infatuation that she had with her. And we see at the top of uh, 2174 uh, that being with Sally revealed things to her about herself, uh, how sheltered the life at uh, uh, Burton seemed. She knew nothing about sex, nothing about social problems. So here's this girl who's more worldly than she is, uh, more free-spirited. He um, talks about her way with flowers, for instance. Flowers are, I, I think, an important symbol throughout this book, and the people who do well and don't do well with flowers are very important. Uh, and also talks about, uh, then she forgot her sponge and ran along the passage naked. The grim old housemaid, Ellen Atkins, went about grumbling, suppose any of the gentlemen had seen. Indeed, she did shock people. She was untidy, Papa said. So, again, you get this, very quickly she gives you this picture of a of a free spirit uh, who was, uh, again, something who was infatuate, an infatuation for Clarissa. Um... And she says, it was not like one's feelings for a man. It was completely disinterested. And besides, it had a quality which could only exist between women, between women just grown up. It was protective on her side, sprung from a sense of being in league together, of presentment of something that was bound to part them. They spoke of marriage always as a catastrophe, uh, which led to this chivalry, this protective feeling, which was much more on her side than Sally's. So she feels protective about her. And then she says, talking about how happy she felt uh, around Sally, uh, we get another Shakespearean allusion here at the bottom of 2174. It says, If it were now to die, were now, twere now to be most happy. That was her feeling, Othello's feeling. And she felt it, she was convinced, as strongly as Shakespeare meant Othello to feel it, all because she was coming down to dinner in a white frock, to meet Sally Seton. Uh, so this moment of extreme happiness. Now, in the play Othello, it's a very ironic line because Othello is saying how happy he is to be married to Desdemona 
and this is right before the plot starts to, to get moving, where he becomes insanely jealous of Desdemona and winds up murdering her. And then in the middle of 2175, she talks about, uh, Then came the most exquisite moment of her whole life, passing a stone urn with flowers in it. Sally stopped, picked a flower, kissed her on the lips. The whole world might have turned upside down. The others disappeared. There she was, alone with Sally, and she felt that she had been given a present, wrapped up and told just to keep it, not to look at it, a diamond, something infinitely precious, wrapped up, which, as they walked up and down, up and down, she uncovered, or the radiance burnt through, the revelation, the religious feeling, when uh, old Joseph and Peter faced them. Stargazing, said Peter. It was like running one's face against a granite wall in the darkness. It was shocking. It was horrible. Not for herself. She felt only how Sally was being mauled already, maltreated. She had felt his hostility, his jealousy, his determination to break into their companionship. So we get this moment of what she says, the most exquisite moment of her whole life. This great happiness is when Sally kisses her. But that moment doesn't, nothing comes of it because it's interrupted. Peter and Joseph uh, come in and uh, interrupt it. And he says it's like rubbing your face on a granite wall in the darkness. Uh, it's, it's horrible. And she thinks about Peter. He's hostile. He's jealous. He wants to break into their companionship. Now, this comes about as close as a book written in the early 1920s could come to talking about a same-sex relationship. Uh, or at least the the uh, infatuation that would lead to one. Uh, so this is some. This tells us something very new about uh, Clarissa Dalway, uh, and also. But I think more than the fact that it's uh, it's a woman, it's the fact that Sally is such a free spirit. That seems to be what uh, attracts her so much to uh, to to Sally and makes this kiss such an exquisite moment. And this also gives us a lot of the, the the background of the relationship between Clarissa and Peter, which will be very important. Uh, but uh, in the present, it moves on to Clarissa needs to mend her green dress. It's been torn. She wants to mend it. It's her evening dress. It's what she's going to wear to the party. And look at how it describes her as she's sewing, page 2177. Quiet descended on her, calm content as her needle, drawing the silk smoothly to its gentle paws, collected the green folds together and attached them very lightly to the belt. So, on a summer's day, waves collect, overbalance and fall, collect and fall, and the whole world seems to be saying, that is all, more and more ponderously, until even the heart in the body which lies in the sun on the beach, says too, that is all. Fear no more, says the heart. Fear no more, says the heart, committing its burden to some sea, which sighs collectively for all sorrows, and renews, begins, collects, lets fall. And the body alone listens to the passing bee, the wave breaking, the dog barking, far away, barking and barking. Now, Think about this. Uh, this is a, this is a moment. What's she doing? She's sewing a, a green dress. 
But the moment takes on vastly more significance. It's like waves. It's like the waves on the beach. And it's about the rhythms of nature. Uh, I mean, you probably have had this experience when you are really engaged in a, a, it's a simple task, but it's something you have to really pay attention to. There's almost a kind of a meditative Zen-like state you can get in. And Virginia Woolf is suggesting that here. And there's almost this moment of insight that comes here. And it's from something as simple and mundane as sewing up a green party dress. Uh, Again, that refrain, fear no more, uh, the, the heat of the sun, that uh, acceptance of mortality that comes in, that kind of renew it renews, begins, collects, lets fall, sorrows and renews. Uh, there's, there's this rhythm to life that she's in touch with, that Clarissa Dalloway is in touch with when she's doing this simple act of sewing. This is why her home feels to her like she's a nun returning to her, her cloister. Uh, there is a kind of a, um, a spiritual significance to the things that she does, at least in Clarissa's eyes there is. But again, she's interrupted. There are, uh, characters are complete, are always being interrupted. If you remember, uh, Septimus said about his wife, she's always interrupting. Well, people are always interrupting in here. These, these moments never last. They're always broken. And this one is broken because Peter Walsh comes in, uh, the, the boy she knew when she was younger, who she said was in India and was coming back soon. Um, and we get to the top of 2178. Uh, Peter Walsh thinks she's grown older, he thought. Um, and the next paragraph, uh, exactly the same, thought Clarissa, the same queer look, the same uh, uh, check suit, uh, a little out of the, of the straight, his face is, a little thinner, drier perhaps, but he looks awfully well and just the same. So what we're getting here is the, we see each character from the other character's perspective. Here's what he thinks of her, here's what she thinks of him, and this continues throughout their exchange, and it allows for some very uh, subtle psychological interplay between them. Now look at the bottom of uh, 2178. Uh, but he had never forgot on, uh, he had never got on well with old Perry, that querulous, weak-kneed old man, Clarissa's father, Justin Perry. I often wish I'd gotten on better with your father, he said. But he never liked anyone who uh, are friends, said Clarissa, and could have bitten her tongue for thus reminding Peter that he had wanted to marry her. Now, this is the kind of thing, again, if you just gave the dialogue, you wouldn't get the the subtext there. The reason she said, any, she was about to say anyone who was interested in me, but she doesn't want to go there. But she knows that even though she didn't, he still is thinking that. Um, yes, of, of course I did, thought Peter. Um, it almost broke my heart, too, he thought. So we get his inner inner monologue and her inner monologue throughout this uh, conversation. And again, think about how different this would be if it were just dialogue. If you weren't getting the, the the feelings and the reactions and the inner thoughts of these characters as they're going going back and forth, you'd miss most of what was going on, and that's actually true of most conversations. If you're talking to somebody who who you know, who you have a history with, a lot of what you say goes unsaid. 
there's a you know the, the 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 actual words you say in a conversation are just a little tip of an iceberg, and the whole history between you is what is underneath that and what informs it and gives it uh, uh, meaning most of the time. And one of the things that Virginia Woolf is doing is capturing that here. She's giving not just the, the the dialogue that they say, but also the interior emotions and thoughts that, that they bring to bear with it. Look at the top of uh, 2180. Well, and what's happened to you, she said. So, before a battle begins, the horses paw the ground, toss their heads, the light shines on their flanks, their necks curve. So Peter Walsh and Clarissa, sitting side by side on the blue sofa, challenged each other. Again, notice how it's elevating this very simple moment of conversation and giving it kind of an epic feeling. It's like these horses uh, coming to, to battle. They're, they're challenging one another. His powers chafed and tossed in him. He assembled from different quarters all sorts of things. Praise his career at Oxford, his marriage, which uh, which he knew uh, nothing whatever about, how he had uh, loved and altogether done his job. Millions of things, he exclaimed, and urged by the assembly of powers which were now charging this way and that and giving him the feeling at once frightening and extremely exhilarating of being rushed through the air on the shoulders of people he could no longer see, he raised his hands to his forehead. Clarissa sat very upright, drew in her breath. I am in love, he said. And so after that little bombshell, we get the the, the story that uh, Peter is telling. He is he's in love with a girl he met in India, uh, but she is a married woman, and he's come to England to arrange for her divorce so that the two of them can be married. And look what Clarissa thinks of this on the top of 2181. She flattered him. She fooled him. That is, Daisy, the woman he's going to marry, thought Clarissa, shaping the woman, the wife of the major in the Indian army, with three strokes of a knife. What a waste. What a folly. All his life long, Peter had been fooled like that, first getting sent down from Oxford, next marrying the girl on the boat going out to India, now the wife of a major in the Indian army. Thank heaven she had refused to marry him. Still... He was in love, her old friend, her dear Peter. He was in love. So uh, Clarissa is very insightful about this. Okay. Oh, is it uh, this again? Is it, you know, like you impulsively married that woman that you met on the boat going to India? Now you're impulsively marrying another woman? She she kind of has his number. though she's, She is sympathetic. You know, she is in love. She's, she's glad of that. And a little further down we get, For heaven's sake, leave your knife alone, she cried to herself in irrepressible irritation. It was his silly unconventionality, his weakness, his lack of the ghost of a notion what anyone else was feeling that annoyed her, had always annoyed her, and now at his age. How silly. I know all that, Peter thought. I know what I'm up against, he thought, running his finger along the blade of his knife. Clarissa and Dalloway and all the rest of them, but I'll show Clarissa, and then, to his utter surprise, suddenly thrown by the unconquerable force thrown through the air, he burst into tears, wept, wept without the least shame, sitting on the sofa, the tears running down his cheeks. And Clarissa leaned forward, taking his hand, drawn to him to her, kissed him, 
actually had felt his face on hers before she could uh, down the brandishing of silver flashing plumes like pompous grass in the topic gale in her uh, in her breast which subsiding left her holding his hand patting his knee and feeling as, as she sat back extraordinarily at her ease with him and light-hearted all in a, a clap it came over her if i had married him this gaiety would have been mine all day um now again we get this this moment and you know in some ways the the tears kind of come out of nowhere he just kind of bursts into tears but in some way it's been building up the whole time uh because he clearly still has feelings for clarissa he's marrying this woman and but he 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 still seems to be carrying a torch for clarissa and Clarissa, who a moment ago was saying, thank heaven I didn't marry him, is thinking by the bottom of 2181, take me with you, Clarissa thought impulsively, as if he were starting directly upon some great voyage. And then, next moment, it was as if the five acts of a play that had been very exciting and moving were now over. And she had lived a lifetime in them and had run away, had lived with Peter, and it was now over. Now it was time to move, and as a woman gathers her things together, her cloak, her gloves, her opera glasses, and gets up to out of theater into the street, she rose from the sofa and went to Peter. So she has this moment where, you know, take me away, but then she kind of, uh, in a flash, lives that life with him and is over it. She's kind of gotten over that moment and is now, uh, you know, putting things away, going on to the next thing. And again, Virginia Woolf is so good at capturing the, the psychology of how these little interactions between people capture all of these feelings and all of the history uh, of, of, that people have behind them. And at this moment where there seems to be a, a kind of a renewed connection between Peter and Clarissa, at least a potential one, Peter asks, tell me, he said, seizing her by the shoulders, are you happy, Clarissa? Does Richard... The door opened. Here is my Elizabeth, said Clarissa, emotionally, histrionically, perhaps. How do you do, said Elizabeth, coming forward. So here's yet another interruption. And as uh, uh, Peter, very embarrassed, kind of rushes out, and she calls after him, remember my party tonight. And now we switch entirely. We've been getting little glimpses of Peter's uh, consciousness in this conversation with Clarissa, but now we switch completely to an inner monologue of Peter uh, and what he's thinking. Look how fragmented his, his thoughts here. Why does she give these parties, he thought, not that he blamed her, or this effigy of a man in a tailcoat with a carnation in his buttonhole coming towards him. So now he's looking at the man who's walking towards him on the street. Only one person in the world could be as he was, in love. Okay, now he's thinking about his, his marriage or his, his, his wish to be married. And there he was, this fortunate man himself, reflected in the plate glass window of a motor car manufacturer in Victoria Street. So now he sees his reflection. All India lay behind him. Plains, mountains, epidemics of cholera, a district twice as big as Ireland, decisions he had to come uh, to alone. He, Peter Walsh, who was now really, for the first time in his life, in love. Clarissa had grown hard, he thought, and a trifle sentimental into the bargain. He suspected, looking at the great motor cars capable of doing how many miles on how many gallons. Now, again, see how his, his, his thought is flickering. 
back and forth, flickering back and forth between what he's seeing right now, his reflection in the mirror, the cars in the shore window, the man coming down the street, and his thoughts about Clarissa. He keeps going back to that, uh, what he thinks of her. He says, there's something cold in Clarissa, he he says. Um, And at the top of 2183, Clarissa refused me, he thought. He stood there thinking, Clarissa refused me. So he's hung up on the, the her refusal to marry him. That seems to that he keeps coming back to that. Um, and if, you know, as you read through this, you can feel this is a much more frantic, uh, uncentered person than Clarissa is. Her feelings, uh, she has her feelings don't run on a smooth line either. She'll think of one thing and the other, but they all seem connected. And you seem to understand how she's progressing from one thought to another. Peter seems much more frantic. Uh, just one thing grabs his attention and then another. Now he's thinking about this other thing. Uh, now he's over here. Now he sees the, the men in uniform or boys in uniform, as he calls them, and thinks about them um, and, and reflects, you know, they don't know the troubles of the flesh yet. And, you know, he keeps thinking, I'm, I'm not old. And uh, then uh, at the bottom of 2184, uh, he had not felt so young for years. He had escaped. He was utterly free as happens in the downfall of habit with the, uh, when the mind, like an unguarded flame, bows and bends and seems about to blow from its holding. I haven't felt so young for years, thought Peter, escaping only, of course, for an hour or so, from beneath being precisely what he was and feeling like a child who runs out of doors and sees as he runs his old nurse waving at the uh, wrong window. Um, so, he, he, again... His thoughts are a little bit disjointed, um, and he's also uh, very contradictory. One, you know, he keeps saying, "I'm not old," but that seems to mean that he thinks he is old. I, I've, I've never felt younger, but you, there's a kind of a, there's almost an internal hypocrisy in him. He's telling himself these things that as if he's trying to convince himself of them. Uh, and again, you didn't see that with Clarissa. She seemed very honest and open with herself about her own feelings. Peter doesn't seem to be that way. We get the little incident where he follows a woman home and makes up this story about her, uh, the middle of 2185. Uh, but she's not married. She's young, quite young, thought Peter. Um, and, you know, he said she moved, she crossed, he followed her. To embarrass her was the last thing he wished. Still, if she stopped, he would say, come and have an ice. He would say, and she would answer perfectly simply, oh, yes. So he's following this girl home and imagining, you know, that she would come with him. And uh, now, wait, he's in, he's trying to get to be married and he's chasing this woman and imagining kind of a romantic encounter with her. So he seems very unsettled. Um, look at the bottom of 2186. He goes to Regent's Park and says, odd, he thought, how the thought of childhood keeps coming back to me. The result of seeing Clarissa, perhaps, for women live much more in the past than we do, he thought. Really? He's the one who keeps thinking about the past, uh, certainly no no more than uh, Clarissa does. Um, again, there's a kind of a lack of, of, of self-awareness or honesty with himself that comes in this. Oh, you know, women are always thinking about the past, not me. I'm a, I'm a man. Um, or little details at like at the bottom of the page says he looked for an empty seat. This is in the park. He did not want to be bothered, 
feeling a little drowsy as he did, by people asking him the time. Um, so he, he he wants to he, he wants to not be bothered, and for people asking him the time again, the passage of time and the sense of mortality uh, are a recurring theme in this book, and it's significant that he wants to be somewhere where nobody's going to remind him of the passage of time or ask him what time it is. He wants to step outside of that. He kind of wants to escape. He says that he's free, and yet he seems desperately trying to escape all the time. Now look at, uh, on 2187, we get uh, uh, in, in Peter's head, he says, By conviction an atheist, perhaps, he is taken by surprise with moments of extraordinary exultation. Now this is, so far, that sounds very similar to what Clarissa was feeling earlier, the almost kind of religious, spiritual gratitude that she felt. But look how different it is for Peter. Nothing exists outside us except a state of mind, he thinks, a desire for solace, for relief, for something outside these miserable pygmies, these pygmies, these feeble, these ugly, these craven men and women. But if he can conceive of her, this imaginary woman, then in some sort she exists, he thinks, and advancing down the path with his eyes upon sky and branches, he rapidly endows them with womanhood sees with amazement how grave they become, how majestically, as the breeze stirs them, they dispense with a dark flutter of the leaves, charity, comprehension, absolution, and then, flinging themselves suddenly aloft, confound the piety of their aspect with a wild carouse. Now, this is very different from what Clarissa was feeling. I've got these these kind of non-religious moments of spiritual exaltation, uh, because for Peter, it's all kind of imposing on it. First of all, it's a rejection of the world. Uh, the, these craven men and women, these pygmies, they're feeble. He doesn't want that. He wants something purer and higher and better. And he has to project it on the world. So he sees the trees and thinks of them as female. Uh, the same way he w- was chasing this girl or following this girl and imagining a scenario about her. Uh, Peter is not content with the world as it is presented to him, he's always trying to impose his mind on it. Uh, Again, that makes him very, very different from Clarissa. And we begin to see the story of the the romance or the the abortive romance between Peter and Clarissa from his point of view. This is on uh, near the bottom of 2188. It was Borton that summer, early in the 90s, when he was so passionately in love with Clarissa. Um... So he's he's thinking about the same time that she had been thinking about. Uh, but for her, Peter was kind of a side issue. The really important character was Sally Seton. That's who she was really all kind of falling in love with. And notice this little incident he remembers. Then somebody said, Sally Seton it was, uh, did it make any real difference to one's feelings to know that before they'd married, she had had a baby? In those days, in mixed company, it was a bold thing to say. So that fits in with what we know about Sally Sutton. He could see Clarissa now turning bright pink, somehow contracting and saying, Oh, I shall never be able to speak to her again. Whereupon the whole party, sitting around the the tea table, seemed to wobble. It was very uncomfortable. So you're talking about having a, you know, Sally has brought up the idea of this couple had a, a baby before they were married, and Clarissa, oh, she can't see that. Uh, she'll never be able to speak to her again. I mean, this is very uncomfortable. You don't talk about this kind of thing in the in the, in the 1890s. Um, 
And he hadn't blamed her for minding the fact, since in those days a girl brought up as she was, knowing nothing. But it was her manner that annoyed him. Timid, hard, something arrogant, unimaginative, prudish. The death of the soul. That's a refrain that he gets up here. The death of the soul. Uh, Now, he's talking about how extraordinarily in love he was with her, but his memories, he's criticizing her. Uh, and these are the kind of contradictions you get in Peter's mind. He's, he's, this is what makes him seem so unsettled. He runs hot and cold one way and then the other. And we see at the bottom of 2189, uh, the, the, essentially the first meeting between Clarissa and her future husband. She was talking to a young man on her right. He had a sudden revelation. She will marry that man, he said to himself. He didn't even know his name. For, of course, it was that afternoon, that very afternoon, that Dalloway had come over, and Clarissa called him Wickham. That was the beginning of it all. Somebody had uh, brought him over, and Clarissa got his name wrong. She introduced him to everybody as Wickham. At last he said, My name is Dalloway. That was his first view of Richard. Uh, Now, Wickham, as I'm sure you remember, was the uh, roguish character in Pride and Prejudice, uh, which was kind of a funny, uh, kind of a joke as we learn more about Richard, because he's about as far away from that kind of character as you could imagine. And notice that Peter, like Clarissa, has this recollection of a moment of happiness. For Clarissa, it was her, it was being with Sally Seton. Uh, this is uh, near the bottom of twenty-one ninety. He had never felt so happy in the whole of his life. Without a word, they made it up. They walked down to the lake. He had twenty minutes of perfect happiness. Her voice, her laugh, her dress, something floating, white, crimson. Her spirit, her adventurousness. She made them all disembark and explore the island. She startled a hen. She laughed. She sang. And all the time, he knew perfectly well, Dalloway was falling in love with her. She was falling in love with Dalloway. But it didn't seem to matter. Nothing mattered. They sat on the ground and talked, he and Clarissa. They went in and out of each other's minds without any effort. And then, in a second, it was over. He said to himself, as they were getting into the boat, She will marry that man, dully, without any resentment. But it was an obvious thing. Dalloway would marry Clarissa. Uh, so he has this moment of, of, again, pure happiness with Clarissa. But even in that, he always kind of knows that it's it's just a moment. It's not a, the beginning of a life with her. He, he can see, literally see right there with him the man who she is falling in love with and is going to marry. So his moment of, of perfect happiness, his 20 minutes here, are very, very different from hers. Uh, the very bottom of the page. For himself, he was absurd. His demands upon Clarissa, he could see it now, were absurd. He asked impossible things. He made terrible scenes. She would have accepted him still, perhaps, if he had been less absurd. Sally thought so. She wrote him all that uh, that summer, long letters, how they had talked of him, how she had praised him, how Clarissa burst into tears. It was an extraordinary summer, all letters, scenes, telegrams, arriving at Borton early in the morning, hanging out 
till the servants were up, appalling tete-a-tetes with old Mr. Perry at breakfast, Aunt Helena formidable but kind, Sally sweeping him off for talks in the vegetable garden, Clarissa in bed with headaches. Um, so again, these kind of flashes of, of memory of this time uh, and this regret about this relationship that still clearly haunts him. Um, and you know, the the uh, there at the end of this section... He says, Clarissa, he cried, Clarissa, but she never came back. It was over. He went away that night. He never saw her again. Now, I think you can see that Peter was really not the right person for Clarissa. Uh, He was infatuated with her, but she didn't reciprocate that. And there were reasons. It's not that she disliked him, and there might have been something between them, but Again, his own character is just incompatible with hers. And uh, Virginia Woolf is able to dramatize this in a very interesting way. I mean, she you can tell in Pride and Prejudice that Jane Austen is always making well-matched and ill-matched couples. And they're drawn in very clear, we understand very clearly why they're wrong or right for each other. In Mrs. Dalloway... It's harder to articulate, but you can feel whether it's it's more like, uh, and I think this is the purpose, it's more like how you feel about people you really know. It, it's not just a character that you can give, here's uh, you know the two reasons why uh, these two would never make a good couple. Uh, it, it's more a feeling of, of, of the totality of their personalities and how they would fit together or how they wouldn't. Now, the next section of the book um, that I want you to read, pages uh, uh, starting here, 2191 through 2213, uh, will continue some with Peter and get more of his uh, feelings. And think about particularly his feelings about, his current day feelings about Clarissa. We've learned about their kind of past and how that went badly. But think about how he feels currently about her and why. And we'll also get a great deal more about Septimus. He reappears in the story and learn a great deal about his background and how he came to be where he is today and also his relationship with his doctors. Uh, Think about all of that, about why he has such bad relationships with his doctors. What what do his doctors not understand about him? Uh, So I thank you for your attention, and we will continue discussing Mrs. Dalloway, next time.